0: All right, we're in Acts chapter 8. Um, the Apostle Luke wrote the book of Acts. Uh, the approximate date is about 80 to 90 A.D. And Acts is, a, is God's record of the first century church. And Acts is really a report of the workings of the Holy Spirit as the Spirit is poured out on the believers after the ascension of Jesus. Acts covers uh, about the first 30 years of the early church, uh, the working in the person of the Holy Spirit, and how the gospel, the pure and simple good news of Christ the Messiah, was preached by the believers of the day. And you're going to hear that a lot tonight. Jesus preached by the believers, because that's what's happening here. Jesus is getting spread to the world. Uh, and about the lives that were changed by the preaching of Je- simple preaching of Jesus. This book um, reports uh, the model of the first century church and really what the church should be involved in. Uh, the church, as we are learning, is a living organism, just like we know here Things are always moving. Things shouldn't remain you know, rigid, but they should be open to growth. It's, it's an organism, and it's really not an organization to be run in the flesh at the will of men. Uh, rather, the early church is overflowing with the Spirit, uh, the Spirit of the living God. And it's really an example to us how our church, how our lives should be run. Every day to be filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit so that his work can be done effectively through the believers, you and I, for those of us who believe. We learn from their works that the primary function of the church is to reach the people and and how to affect the culture of the day. That's clear. It's simple. You preach Jesus. That's how you change the culture. It's clear that the first century church wasn't involved in politics. They were focused on preaching the gospel, the pure and simple gospel. And again, the best way to change a culture is to bring people to faith by preaching Jesus. Uh, They simply pointed to Jesus and ignited a fire of his love where those embers of that fire are still glowing and felt to this very day we're all sitting in this room 2,000 years later, you know or so, um, <laughs> because of the faith put into action by those people. You know These embers are still flying are, are still glowing. These normal everyday men, these non-apostle men, and I'm at, I might add that non-apostle is, is kind of a cool title, they are an example to us of that the kind of people God will use. Uh, the truth is, is that we, you, and me, and all of us here, are non-apostles, and God can use us. You know, that's the truth. And we can be the kind of people who stand for the faith, like Philip, like Stephen, non-apostles, deacons, waiters of tables. Um, the apostles are used as well. Uh, Peter and John are mentioned here in eight. We'll see them... What 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 these two groups have in common is both these groups, the apostles and, and, and the waiters at tables, the, the non-apostles, are willing servants, okay? They are disciples of Christ, men of faith, with the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Of course, my fingers are getting all wet. They, you know, they... They, they, everybody they came across. They told them about Jesus, and it's simple. You want to see a life change? Tell them about Jesus and His love. Preach Jesus. Change the culture. Preach Jesus. Give them the simple, unencumbered, unfiltered message of God's love to a hurting, depressed world that needs salvation that only comes from Jesus. Keep it simple. Preach Jesus. Last week, Fernando did an excellent 60-minute study on the 60 verses of chapter 7, where we learned of the young deacon Stephen and his preaching and teaching and his confrontation with the religious leaders of the Sanhedrin. Stephen was one of seven, set apart, and he was filled with the Spirit. Stephen was faithful in the small things. Stephen waited on tables. He served the people pastors are waiters of tables they serve the people they meet the needs of the people and they meet the the needs of those overlooked by others i mean if you remember last week about the hellenistic women of the church whose needs weren't being met stephen went ahead and w- w- was helping them out um, and stephen was excellent in his preaching so much so he upset the religious establishment of the day and and silenced their arguments, uh, and basically infuriating them. He was so effective in his discourse that Stephen becomes the first church martyr eh, for the faith. Stephen is stoned to death for mealing speaking words of truth that pierced the hearts of the Sanhedrin. You know, it's, it's interesting. We take free speech for granted in this country, but it is pr- a precious thing. You know, we need to guard it and protect it with everything we have. Um, just the other day at work, I management came in and ownership came into my room and in my bay and we sat down. I felt like the principal was there, you know, I was like, what's going on? And they basically lovingly reminded me that I'm not supposed to talk about religion at work. And I guess because I happened to play a Christian song on my computer that somebody heard and i i may have talked about god a little bit but i certainly wasn't you know proselytizing somebody i was just talking and i was basically said we're not writing you up but be careful so it's out there it's coming you know we got a whole generation of people who don't know anything about Jesus and don't want to know anything about Jesus. And they smell it, and they run to where their rights allow them to. Anyway, it no big deal, but it's it, just an example of, you know, it's precious. Our speech is precious. We need to guard it. Stephen was accused of blasphemy. Stephen, in those 50 or so verses of chapter 7, was able to show the religious leaders that over the course of history, the leaders missed God's deliverer time and time again. They discounted Joseph, they discounted Moses, and now Jesus, the Messiah, was rejected by them. And rather than to submit to Jesus, they wanted him killed and removed from the scene. In Acts seven fifty-one to 53, it says, Stephen rebukes him, says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Pretty strong words. Stephen basically tells them that they just repeated what their ancestors had done. And, well, you know, they got angry. And they dragged Stephen to the center of town and they stoned him to death. Stephen dies and he finishes well. This common, everyday, non-apostle, man filled with the Holy Spirit finished well. So well, in fact, that the Lord shows up in verse 55. I can only pray that I can finish well. I I know it's a prayer for all of us believers here tonight that we finish well. We want to hear from the Lord, well done, my good and faithful servant. You know, when my kids were young and, you know, they'd come to a situation that would become difficult, I would always remind them, you know, it's not how you start, honey, it's how you finish. It's how you finish, and that is how our Christian life should be taken. Every day, every day, every day. It's how we finish. In the last verses of chapter 7, we meet up with Saul. And will become a fruit of Stephen's life. uh, Stephen's life of preaching and martyrdom. Uh, Saul does not convert immediately. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Uh, But, uh, you know, he persecutes the church, kills a few people. But, hey, you know, what can you do? But he... Does and should be an example to us all that we should never stop praying for that person who you never think will get saved. You know, Saul does convert. We shouldn't stop praying for that difficult person that we see. You know, God can do anything, God can save anyone. He saved you, He saved me. You know, it's God can do anything, not by my. Not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Zechariah 4.6 So tonight in chapter 8 we meet Saul, and the early church is persecuted, and subsequently it scatters, and, you know, it scatters as Acts chapter 1 verse 8 meets Acts chapter 8 verse 1. Philip preaches Jesus, the people of Samaria get saved and filled with the Holy Spirit, And Simon the sorcerer gets saved. Or does he? Let's start reading. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution rose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial. Made a great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison, and ultimately, you know, some of them, their deaths. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip hearing and seeing the miracles which he did, for unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame, and the lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Let's, let's stop there for now. Um, in these first eight verses we learn Saul his consenting to Stephen's death. The word consenting essentially means approving or uh, yeah, approving since he was a ranking religious leader at this point. you know, um, In Acts 22, verse 3, Saul was of good pedigree. He studied under the finest teacher of the day. Um, I'm going to butcher his name, Gamaliel. And he was a Roman citizen. Saul was a religious zealot, uh, a Pharisee. You know, Saul was a Greek-speaking Jew from Asia Minor. His birthplace was Tarsus, uh, and Tarsus was a, a major city in eastern uh, Cilia, off that end that way. <laughs> I have the map in front of me, sorry. Uh, a region that had been made part of the Roman province of Syria by the time of Paul's adulthood, so Paul was a Roman citizen as well. Um, and that's where his citizenry comes from. He was called the Hebrew of Hebrews in Philippians chapter 3. Uh, he came from the tribe of Benjamin, and the mighty fighting men of Benjamin. So, you know, he was a tough dude, evidently. Saul consents, and really what he, what he says by consenting is that he's voting yes. He voted with the majority to kill Stephen. Saul, Saul, Saul and the leaders of that day saw Stephen's death as a way to stop the trouble in town and, 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 and you know, quiet things down. Uh, the, the trouble that Stephen and his kind were causing. So, consenting is a perfect word because the attitude it conveys. Saul voted yes. He may not have thrown a rock because you know he was above that as a as a Pharisee, but uh, his vote was equal to any rocks flying that day in Acts seven fifty eight. Uh, Saul, indeed, was one of the angry leaders of the angry establishment. And this establishment of religious men were whipped into a frenzy by Stephen, and they stoned Stephen for speaking the truth. But they called it blasphemy. And again, clearly free speech has always been a dangerous thing, as we can see by Stephen's death the The other picture I gleaned for me here is that uh, religion or um, better said religious um, religious people without Jesus constraining their hearts can be cruel and wicked um, you know, just mean I mean they 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 just weren't rational at this point. You know the church is scattered, uh, we see. God uses Stephen's death and the persecution of the church to spread the gospel. God was shaking the tree. God will, God will squeeze us and put pressure on our lives because he loves us. Uh, we read in Acts 8.1, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the world. We're all familiar with that verse. But it took the persecution... To get the believers moving, to scatter them to Judea and to Samaria and ultimately throughout the world. It was the persecution of Acts chapter 8, verse 1, that moved the church to obey the command of Acts chapter 1, verse 8. So it can be said that if you in your life expect to fill or fulfill Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you can count on finding the opposition of Acts chapter 8, verse 1. That was something Jacob Belen wrote that I just thought, oh, that's pretty cool. That guy's pretty smart. Uh, Persecution or hardship in our own spiritual lives may be slightly different than a public stoning or an execution of stoning. However, you could be facing a job loss, uh, the end of a relationship, that can leave you in an insecure or an unsettled place in your life, um, an illness. Maybe all you're seeing are, are doors closing all around you and you're wondering, why God, what's, what's going on? Like those normal people of the first century church, God is shaking up their circumstances so his will can be done and move in their lives, and in our own lives. Uh, God needs to shake us sometimes. And let's be honest, for most of us, true and effectual change in our own lives really only comes after a big moment like a pink slip or a broken relationship or cancer to get us moving in the direction that God has for us. Being comfortable isn't always what's best, spiritually speaking. The Lord knows where he can use you most effectively, in the service of his people and his will. We just need to trust him. You know, if he's shaking your tree, trust that he is working for your good. We need to trust him. Uh, Still in verse 1, I really wonder why it is that the apostles... Didn't leave, and could it be that they had experienced it, persecution or pressure, what it was like to flee in fear earlier? Like the night that they put Jesus on trial and brought him to Caiaphas, most of those, most of those guys ran, and only a few stayed around, and even then they were watching from a distance in the shadows. And the next day when our Lord was crucified, all the disciples were gone except John. Now we move forward five or six years, maybe they learn from the past. And this time, they were determined to stay, even if it meant they were risking their own lives. They learned. Verse 2, devout men carried Stephen. Devout men means hear God fears it could be that these guys weren't believers Um, it could be that these devout men are not Christians or members of the church and the reason why scholars believe this is that they come to the conclusion because the phrase they make great lamentation for him a true understanding of what happens to a child of God at death doesn't really provoke great lamentation it provokes rejoicing and peace for them who are now there with the Lord in his kingdom. That's one of the things I've noticed, well, I've I've been a Christian for a little while now, and growing up Catholic, you could remember everybody wailing and crying, and it was this big, dramatic thing, and, you know, it was just so, like, overwhelming. and, And when you see the life of a saint go, you know, as a Christian, as a believer, you sit there peacefully, you're happy happy for them because you know you're sad but you but you have that peace that they're gonna they're gonna walk through that door and they're gonna see jesus and that's just joy that's just joy anyway sorry as for saul in verse three he made havoc of the church he's entering houses flipping tables hauling people down to jail committing them to prison Paul was empowered by the Sanhedrin to put them in jail uh, for those people who called upon the Lord. And he was going into their fellowships and just, just making life miserable. The word havoc here comes from the root word used to describe the results of wounding a wild boar. Well, I've never seen that, what a wild boar wounded looked like, but I could imagine any wounded animal is never a pleasant thing. So you can imagine this this rabid raging boar. You know, these boars go on rampages when they lose control. And this is what's happening to Saul and the religious leaders. Saul is a is a refined, he's cultured religious scholar who sat under the finest teachers. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He studied beyond compare. This man had the command of the Greek language that was greater than any other writer. He lost his composure and all control because of what Stephen was preaching, the simple truth of the gospel. He was, he was seeing red, as they say. And and at first he merely consented to let the others do the dirty work, but, you know, because I was beneath him, but we find him going from house to house, you know, hunting people down essentially and throwing them out to the streets and imprisoning believers like a Nazi stormtrooper, you know, in the 1940s, ultimately sending these early believers of Jesus to their death. It's the same thing that, that just... Blind rage. That's demonic, really. Oh, come on, computer. There we go. Saul committed great offenses against the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But I find it beautiful that it was Paul's sight that was restored after his meeting with the Father on the road to Damascus in chapter 9. Saul was blinded by his irrational Loathing and fear and abhorrence of the early believers, blinded, but the Paul after repentance could see. The scales were, had fallen off. Amazing grace saved Paul. In Luke chapter 7, 36, we, we find the woman who's washing Jesus' feet with her tears. She was forgiven much. Jesus said, because her sins were many. Jesus is in the business of forgiveness and changing lives. No human soul is beyond forgiveness if the human soul is repentant. Paul sinned much. Well, Saul sinned much. Paul was forgiven much. So he loved much. And his life was radically changed, as we'll see as we continue through Acts and the rest of the scriptures. Verse 4, believers are scattered, God will is done. The believers are now running from Saul and the horde of zealots who want nothing but blood. You know, the picture here is that the early church did flee, but they fled, but they were preaching Jesus all the way. So it's kind of odd to say that they were fleeing, but... I'm hey, going to tell you about Jesus as I'm running. Keep running with me. You know, I mean, it's hard to imagine that, but they left preaching and 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 telling people about Jesus every step of the way. Therefore, the effect of the persecution was the moving of God's people to spread the gospel. Acts one eight was put into motion. God was shaking the tree so His will can be manifest. Paul and the horde tried in vain to put out the fire of the flames of the good news, but all they really did was cause it to spread. Those embers are still glowing, as we said earlier. Verse 5, Philip the non-apostle. Philip was like Stephen in Acts 6, a deacon of faithful in the little things so God can use him in, in the greater things. And I love the non-apostle description these, the, because these men are just like you and me, and that gives us hope. And and God used these guys mightily, you know. The lesson is that God uses regular people. You know, Billy Graham, probably the greatest peach, preacher in American history, he he started by selling shoes door to door, as I recall, and 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 now what great ta- training door to door selling shoes, getting rejected constantly, because think about that. Do you want to buy shoes out of my trunk? You know, everybody's going to say no. But yet he was faithful in the small things. And God got a hold of his life. And and then we see the rest of his life, what a, a life wholly given to God can do. Um, I got to see Billy Graham when he was at the Rose Bowl uh, the last time. And got to hear him speak and... I was amazed at the simplicity of the words coming out of his mouth. Not really by any great theological expounding that he was doing. Because he didn't do that. He simply told people in the most loving way possible. That Jesus loves you. And he died for your sins. And you're a sinner. And you need a savior. Come and meet your savior. And then... Half the audience gets up in the Rose Bowl and goes down. And my mind is just blown because I'm expecting to hear the wisdom of all the ages. And what do I hear? I hear the simple preaching of the gospel done in love. That was awesome. I'll never forget that. God uses regular people. You know, even in this building, Pastor Tony was a painter at one point. Pastor Fernando was an industrial sewing machine engineer. Pastor Sam was a bank teller. Pastor Xavier worked at a supermarket. And Pastor Mario worked on a pirate ship off the Italian Amalfi Coast. (laughs) Oh, sorry. Sorry. That's another story. I, I digress. Uh, the point is that God uses normal men and women, and these first century, first century normal men and women were fruitful. They had no grand plan or marketing scheme. They just spread the love of Jesus. Doesn't that seem like a good plan? Just spread the love of Jesus. You know, when we go down to Mexico and do those outreaches, everybody there—we're there for one reason—to spread the love of Jesus. That's it. You want to be fruitful? Tell them about Jesus. Don't focus on what they don't have. Don't start arguments. Preach the message of the cross. Preach Christ and let them know what a life in Christ is and how that life is great gain. Philip preached Christ, and he went down to Samaria to do so. In Second Kings 17, it gives the account of the Assyrian invasion into Israel in 721 B.C., the Assyrians gained control of the region. And as they moved in, they, they married the weakened and impoverished Jews who were left behind there. And a half-breed race of people was, a Bruce known, was produced known as the Samaritans. Um, the Jews in the south looked down on these people. And um, they would go out of their way to avoid contact. them. they called them dogs and, and basically viewed them as less-than-people. You know, I grew up in El Sereno not too far from here. Uh, <laughs> and in the, I forget, is the late 60s or early 70s? Um, El-, El Serino butts up against Alhambra and South Pasadena and LA proper. And I can remember um, there was a big hull of because where El Sereno ends right there on Huntington Drive near Alhambra Road, there's, you know, it's really, it's kind of a nice neighborhood, but it bunts up against the hill of South Pass. Well, wow the good people of South Pasadena didn't want the undesirables coming in. So they they built a wall and they blocked it off and kept people out. Now, I never really knew I was Mexican. I never really knew I was poor. (laughs) But I think about that and just how irrational that is. Because any thief or burglar (laughs) isn't going to be hindered by a four-foot barrier. (laughs) But... I, you know, it never really bothered me. I just always found that it's just kind of funny. Really? You, you're going to put up a wall? <laughs> okay. Anyway, um, that's why in in John chapter 4, it was shocking probably to hear that when Jesus said, I need to go through Samaria, and because the Jews didn't, you know, they didn't mix with, with the Samaritans. They just didn't do that. And, and now we find... Philip, seven or eight years afterward, and all these dates are approximate because nobody really knows the hardened time to it. So, you know, all these scholars just kind of give approximate numbers. But after seven or eight years, um, you know, Jesus went there going to Samaria. After Jesus went there, Philip heads their way too. And you really got to wonder if that woman at the well was there to hear Philip too, you know? The lives being changed, and, and remember the word, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. So he preached the Messiah to them. The the Samaritans were looking for the Messiah, and you know when Jesus met the woman at the well, he said uh, she said to him, "We know that when the Messiah has come, he's going to teach us all things." They were looking for the Messiah. They knew the scriptures and related to the Messiah. And they were, and and that woman. Uh, went out to tell the other people, come and hear a man who had told me everything that I've ever done. Is this not the Messiah? And they came out and they heard Jesus. And they said, now we believe not because what you have told us, but because what we have heard and seen for ourselves. So that seed was planted in Samaria. And Philip went to go proclaim the Messiah to them and and he bared much fruit. And the people in wonder court gave heed to those things which Philip spoke, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Unclean spirits that were cl- crying out with loud voices came out. And, you know, people who were possessed weren't possessed anymore. And people who had palsies and lame were healed. Philip was part of miracles and healings firsthand. And, and you wonder about that today. Can, can we see that kind of healing and casting out of demons, you know, in our day? And I would say yes. I'd say it's a big world and it happens all over the world. Maybe not so much in our our enlightened American Western culture that does everything we can to wrap things and label things as science and psychology and call everything a disease or a disorder. And, you know, what's the latest one? I, I, I identify as right now. I think that's what they're saying. No, that's not a demon residing in me. That's whom I identify as. Uh, You know, when I was uh, in transition work, you know, a decade or so ago, I was going down to um, this editing school down in Melrose and Manfield, deep in the heart of Hollywood. And I had to be there. 7 a.m. on Saturday and Sundays for these weekend classes. And if you know anything about Melrose and Mansfield, it's just not the most pleasant place, and it was even less pleasant back then. And I'll never forget that on this particular Sunday morning, I'm just kind of loitering in the parking lot because the teachers weren't there yet and there was nothing to do. And all of a sudden, I see come walking down this large six foot six man muscles and a mini skirt and heels and makeup. And and he had that look in his eye. And I just I'd never seen that before, number one. Uh, Number two, you could tell that he wasn't just out for a stroll. He was out to destroy. He was he was out to feed his flesh. And he was gonna feed his flesh at 7 a.m. on a Sunday morning. That's not normal. That's that's bondage. That's that that's bondage to whatever demonic entity or desire that he filled his life with. And it just made me think immediately of Mark chapter five when when Jesus talks to the demon and the demon says, My name is Legion, for we are many. This guy was this guy was trapped. On a happier note, there was great joy in the city of Samaria. The city of Samaria, the gospel in the city of Samaria, the gospel is now being preached. And the result of the gospel in the hearts of the people is that great joy. Joy and joy is always the result of the gospel being preached. As joy happens, joy happens as God moves into the lives of the people. In uh, Psalm one forty four fifteen, it tells it, it tells us God's people will be blessed. The people whose God is the Lord, God moves in, joy happens. All right, let's uh, move on to Simon, uh, verse nine. But there was a certain man called Simon who was. Previously, who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And they heeded him and, and because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized and simon himself also believed and when he was baptized he continued with philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and the signs which were done so simon the sorcerer was the religious religious guru in town he had the corner on the market on anything mystical and magical and he captivated the audience and of followers he he used magic and trickery uh, to enthrall the the people into believing he was a man of great power. The people saw Simon as the power of God among them. Um, He was like the Houdini or the Chris Angel or the David Blaine of the day, where he was able to, you know, blow their minds with card tricks or whatever. Although that David Blaine guy kind of freaks me out too, so... Um, the Bible says that he had them bewitched. You know, like those harmless Harry Potter books and movies whole generations will so cling to, to the writings of J.K. Rawlings. They're harmless. They, they're they okay. It's okay. He had power over the people. The funny thing is that there was no mention of Simon actually really helping these people. I I mean... I personally have had conversations with people I come across at work, (laughs) of course, uh, who are generally atheistic and younger than me, who will look for hope and meaning in these Harry Potter books and, and finding none in our conversations. Jesus, however, the good book, the Bible, has a message of power that can change the lives and hearts of even the hardest follow ground and the hardest hearts and mind. So let's picture Philip coming onto the scene into town. He rolls into Samaria and he knows that this is Simon, the sorcerer territory, because there are Simon the Magi billboards all along the streets, and people are wearing Simon the Sorcerer T-shirts, and and there's they have you know Simon tattoos and keychains and bumper stickers on their rolling carts. They even have you know the Simon Make Samaria Great Again hats <laughs> at 35 denarius apiece. You know they're very popular. You know merchandising is important. Anyway, Philip strolls into town with no fear and a message, with the simple message of Christ, and, and and Simon's influence immediately goes down, and 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 his business dies, and the power that he has over the people is diminished. Philip, the non-apostle, came and he spread the good news, and the people responded. The people suddenly realized that there was a hope. There was there's joy and a reason for living. I uh, when I when I first read The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis there was a line that gets repeated in uh, the first book of the seven books the line with the witch in the wardrobe and that line is "Aslan is on the move." And it gets repeated several times in the movie and it always kind of gave me goosebumps because it was the the realization that After a hundred years of no Christmas, the snow is melting and the spirit is moving. Well, that's what's happening here in Samaria. Aslan is on the move. And in our lives, if we are spirit-filled and spirit-led, Aslan is on the move. It's awesome. This is what we are witness to here in these verses, in, in these lives of, of Philip and and these people, that when we yield to the Holy Spirit of the living God and allow it to move in us, around us, and through it, God, Aslan, is on the move. Philip came into town knowing who he served. He served the true and living God of the Bible. Philip was confident in his teaching of the Christ, and... That teaching was branded or written into his heart because it's not like he had a King James version underneath his arm. That just didn't exist. It was, it was here. It was, it was right here. And that, and that should also be an example for all of us. It needs to be here so it comes out of here. When it's over here, it's, it's nice that it's there, but it's not here. So it can come out here. Philip knew God was with him. Philip simply preached Jesus and watched God work in the lives of the people. To work in the lives of people and to break the spell of Simon the charlatan. Philip overcame the opposition and was not intimidated by Simon's power and reputation. God did the work. Philip was just confidently obedient. Confidently obedient. In First 1 Samuel 1747, it says, "Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with the sword and with the spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hands." Philip knew this. he wasn't worried. he knew that the battle belonged to the Lord. He knew he carried the genuine mission of God. And the genuine message of God and the Word of God will always reveal the counterfeit. Simon was the counterfeit, and he had nowhere to go, you know, because once the genuine article comes around, all you can do is hide, you know. In fact, uh, it made me think of a movie, uh, because I like movies, and (laughs) there was a movie in 1992, Leap of Faith, with Steve Martin, where Steve Martin is uh, playing a... um, a false preacher and an evangelistic healer, um, Jonas Nightingale, fooling the people for money in this church tent revival and, and these healing meetings. And he, he says this line that, that struck a chord Look, I run a show here. It's a lot of smoke and noise, and it's strictly for the suckers. I've been pulling one kind of scam or another since I was your age. And if there's, no, if there's one thing I know, it's how to spot the genuine article because that's what you got to watch out for. It's not the cops. You can always get around the cops. But the one thing you can never, ever get around is the genuine article. And you, kid, are the genuine article. I found that to be quite insightful because when you have access access to the genuine article if you are born again tonight you are the result of the genuine preaching and teaching of the genuine article we are sitting here tonight in a room full of miracles and healings tonight the lesson for us is to strive to be like philip the evangelist philip heart philip's heart was right he was filled with the spirit And really, as the first century church was, you know, as we read in the scriptures, we all need more of Jesus and more of the Spirit. And As the word says in John 3, He must increase, but I must decrease. Simply put, God needs to rule our hearts and our mind. In Mark 12, it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Love your neighbor as thyself. This is the great commandment. This is what we're supposed to do. Love God and love others. It's simple. The Christian life, when you break it down to its very essence, love God and love others. How do you love others that don't know Christ? Tell them about Christ. That's the greatest act of love you can do. Sure, you can mow a lawn and you can clean some windows or you can help out with chores or whatever it is but it's telling them about Jesus that will actually change their life and and really affect their lives. Preach Jesus. Simply preach Jesus. Oh, I went too far. Of course, now the computer is complaining. Uh, So in verse 13 it says, Simon believed also. You know, it says Simon believed, but we find out in upcoming verses that he didn't really. Simon believes, but in James 2.19, it teaches that even devils believe, and at least they tremble. Sneaky Simon. Simon says he believes, but his heart does not change. It, it's a, it's actually interesting here because he, he, he fools Philip, you know, because, you know, Philip lets him hang out with him, and he's watching things, and he's watching the miracles happen, you know, and... It really does happen all the time, I, you know. Uh, I'm 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 sure not everybody is absolutely truthful all the time in this place. I mean, I, you know, you, you 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 see people living lives in church, but then ultimately their end that they they fade away because they can no longer live the double life, you know. And who were they really fooling, you know? They they were fooling themselves, you know. You know Simon's faith is is interesting because the faith is in his head. He makes an intellectual commitment there. He affirms his faith mentally, but um, it never takes root in his heart. You know, and because if faith is not in your heart, then then really you're no better than the demons in hell. There's not one demon today that doubts the uh, reality of hell. Your heart must be touched. Your faith must affect the way you live. Faith without works is dead or evidence. Uh, John Corson has a nice little wrapper for that thought where it says, Faith without works, you say? I thought salvation was by faith. Well, it is. It's faith... It's not faith and works, it's faith that works. Your faith moves you into action. And, you know, you can walk through this building tonight. That's all evidence there. Everything on the wall, in the gym, and in the education room, and in the sanctuary. It's all evidence of active faith. Faith that works to the glory of God. There's this place is filled with faithful people who love God. All right. Uh, let's go through verses thirteen through seventeen. Then Simon himself also believed, and he was baptized, and he continued with Philip, and he was amazed seeing the miracles and signs that were done. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard uh, that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he, for as yet he, had not fallen upon none of them they had only been baptized in the name of jesus they then they laid hands on them and then they received the holy spirit we should notice here that the people in samaria had accepted Christ, but they were not empowered yet with the coming upon of the holy spirit so peter and john come down from jerusalem to lay hands on the peoples it is interesting that peter and john get called down to do it because why didn't phil do it you know, he was there. Did Phil think that he needed the big guns of the apostles to come down to somehow show solidarity? That they were all one under Christ and, and verify the linkage between Samaria and, and to show support of the bodies of believers in both Samaria and Jerusalem? Or maybe Phil recognized that he was not gifted in the laying of hands and called on those who he knew were anointed. And, and he was smart enough to get out of the way so God's Spirit can move and fill the people. The picture here is that there are many people with different gifts that make up the body. And a healthy church and body has, has many cells like you know an organism. One person cannot... And should not do it all except for Rafi. Rafi is MacGyver. In fact, he's rebuilding somebody's transmission right now. I, he is. I know he is. While he's here simultaneously, it's got to be. And he has a cake in the oven. <laughs> Just kidding. Nothing but love for you, my brother. Matthew eleven twenty nine and thirty says, "My yoke is easy and my burden is light." We share the burden. There are many parts of the body that make up this living organism called the church. We all need to pitch in. What does your dad say? Many hands? What, what's that? Say that? Work. Many hands, lighter work. It's a good one. The other interesting thing to note here is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit can and is oftentimes separate from salvation. And when God first comes into a person's heart when the person is born again, so it can happen separately. Yeah, it did for me, you know It happened at a different time. And verse 16 is the sizable clue to this fact, because for as yet he, w- he was fallen upon none of them yet. He, the He right there, it's referencing the Holy Spirit, uh, the person of the Holy Spirit. They had been baptized in the name of Jesus. And in a few verses up, in verse 37, Philip preaches to the eunuch and tells the Ethiopian how to become baptized in the name of Jesus if he believes, reinforcing the fact that baptism follows salvation. So basically they were saved and they were baptized in the Lord's name, but the Spirit had not fallen upon them yet. There are mountains of data and volumes of writings by much smarter men than myself who have exhaustive studies on the subject of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, I I will do my best to break it down as best I can, but certainly Xavier has many, many writings, and many Bible scholars have tackled this. Essentially, there are three prepositional phrases that identify the relationship of the Holy Spirit with man. Uh, there is the phrase that the Holy Spirit is with man, para in the Greek. It means that the Spirit is in the world and convicts the world of sin and convicts the hearts of men. He is pointing, the Spirit is pointing the men to the cross. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in the, wor- in the world. In John 14, 15, it says, Jesus told us he was going to send you the Spirit of truth and that and that shall be with you. Ara, with you, and come, and this comes to the next phrase uh, in you, or in the Greek, en, and that's the second Greek word meaning in you, inside of you, born again. The connotation here is that it operates from the inside. Uh, I like that because I like the idea that God sent somebody who was on the inside to do the inside job. He is with you, para, convicting you of your sin and coming to be in you when you are born again, operating inside of you. When we are led by the Spirit, in John twenty, um, it says uh, Jesus breathes on them. God breathes um, on, uh, and the word there is pneuma, a description of the Spirit, and it's telling that he tells the disciples to receive them and. and to receive the Spirit so they can have the authority to preach based on the death and the resurrection of the Son. So we find the, the Samaritans are born again. The Holy Spirit... I really got to clean this thing. ...had been with them par, and now that they are saved, he moves in them, or en, en in the Greek, the result being that they have a new life in Christ, their eyes were opened and they were delivered from their sins. Their joy was full, and they were baptized. They were obedient to the work of God's Spirit. But there is one more experience or phrase for our purpose here in this study. It is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's a different word. It's epi, uh, E-P-I, in Acts 1.8. So the Spirit is with you, para, in you, en, and ultimately upon you, epi. Uh, for the sake of the empowering you like the disciples to be his witness to administer to the gifts to preach like Philip and Stephen empowered by the Holy Spirit to get the Word of God out in his power so it's para with you in you and and ultimately upon you epi and um, I'll to empower you so his his power is manifest in our lives. So Peter and John pray specifically for the Holy Spirit to be poured out and come upon them. And guess what happens? It does. Imagine that. <laughs> the gospel of Jesus is preached. Salvation comes through the work of his Spirit-filled people, and the power of the Holy Spirit works out. God is moving. Oslan is on the move. These are a direct result of preaching Jesus. Simple. This is not hard. Let's continue. Uh, Simon is a witness to the power, and he really only sees this as a trick. This is really revealing Simon's heart here. Maybe this power can restore his prominence with the people and get his business going again. And, and, and Simon then offers money for these tricks. You know? And so in verse 18 it says, When Simon saw that through the laying hands uh, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money saying, Give me this power, so that anyone in whom I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of these things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in the many villages of the Samaritans. Simon's heart wasn't right. Uh, It's clear he was just pretending to be a believer. He didn't repent from his sorceries, you know, And in fact, we get the term simony at this point from Simon's act to try to purchase God's power here. Simony, uh, by definition, is the act of selling church offices and, and and roles, you know, board positions, donor lists, and influence in the church. I mean, the practice this practice was practiced heavily throughout church history, and it was widespread in the ninth and tenth centuries, and even though there's canon laws against it, you know, we shouldn't be doing this. Go figure, religious people breaking laws. Imagine that. I mean, I've had Jewish, you know, talking to Jewish friends here in town, they've shared with me that on high holy days, the people that fill the temples um, pay for their seats. Um, The better the seat, the higher the donation, you know. Uh, These are the good families, uh, the salt of the earth, you know, the but truth is, I, I don't really think God needs our money. I really don't. It's just trying to buy influence, trying to be seen. Simon's sin was that he was seeking the power of God for personal gain. I mean, he still had a warehouse full of hats and T-shirts. <laughs> What's a guy supposed to do? Well, he's supposed to repent. That's what he's supposed to do. In verse 20, Peter rebukes Simon and tells him to repent. What is clear here is that Peter was firm and direct with this new believer. He didn't He didn't hold back. He said, repent, sinner. There was no, let's talk about your feelings, Simon, and, and have a nice session and hold hands in the dark. No, it was repent, sinner. Repent. The Bible was clear, open rebuke is better than hidden love. Psalm twenty-seven. Simon had a bad heart. Simon was fleshy. He was carnal. Sorry, Simon was sorry, and he was not repentant. When Simon was rebuked, he didn't turn away and he, he just said, Don't let it happen to me. He was not interested in being corrected. He just wanted to escape the consequences, like a lot of people in this world. So sneaky Simon fades out here. And church history is vague about Simon's end. Some say he was the father of Gnosticism, which is the teaching that all matter is evil and only the spirit is good, yada, yada, yada. And others write that he went insane and he buried himself alive. How does somebody do that? You know, it just it didn't make sense to me. So they, the believers, headed back to Jerusalem, preaching Jesus through Samaria along the way. The believers of the early church, Stephen and Philip, and the non-apostles are an example of spirit-filled people so that God can get his will done in us and through us. Stephen finished well. And Philip, in the subsequent verses, has more of God's work to do. You and I need to be filled to capacity with the spirit every day uh, just a couple more thoughts before we wrap up here there was a devotional in my email the other day and it speaks to the desire and the necessity of being filled funny how that happened that came into my email just in time for this study I yeah, often wonder how that happens for in him dwells the fullness of all head God. Godhead bodily and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power in Colossians 2 9 and 10. Jesus is all that we will ever need. He is the fullness which shows that he is equal in stature and position to the Father and the Holy Spirit. Why follow the empty philosophy and worldly notions when we have all fullness in Christ? Christ can hold all all the fullness of the deity. We cannot. We're finite. When we are born again into the family of God, we are made complete in Christ. Our spiritual growth is not by addition, but rather by nutrition. We grow from the inside out as we take the word of God in. If we were to go to the Pacific Ocean with a mason jar, you guys know what a mason jar is, and allow the ocean to rush into it, instantly our jar would be filled with the fullness of the Pacific Ocean. But we could never put the fullness of the, we could never put the entire fullness of the Pacific Ocean into our jar. You get what I mean? You know, you'll never get that whole thing into that little thing, but you take that one thing, you have the fullness of Christ there. But, I need to make it bigger, Sorry. But we can never put the fullness of the Pacific into our jar. With Christ, we realize that because he is infinite, he can hold all the fullness of the deity, of the Godhead. He is infinite. He, he has it all. And when one of us finite creatures dips the tiny vessel of our lives into him, we instantly become full of his fullness. So let us come to the ocean of his fullness, not with a tiny jar, but with our very lives, so that he can fill us and take us as we take in more and more of who he is. And that was written by Pastor Gerard Deliu of Morningstar. And the last thing is um, the song that came to my head because I'm in the sound ministry and I hear music all the time. And there are some songs that over the years just um, mean more than others, but this song spoke to me when doing the study. It made perfect sense because we do need more of Jesus. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made and were every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints' and angels' song. The love of God is measureless. The love of God is strong. Hallelujah and amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day. We ask, Lord, that you just, again, go before us and be with our families and help us to be the light to a dying world, Father. And help us to have that compassion, Lord, just to preach your simple message, Father. We love you and love others. We thank you, Lord, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.